0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. One of my best friends in college was a guy named Scott. And uh, Scott and I roomed together during our sophomore year. And one day, I can still kind of picture it was there in our room. One day, I don't even know what we were talking about, but one day Scott told me something about himself that really impressed me. Uh, He told me, and it was just kind of mentioned in passing, he told me that his mother was related to Douglas MacArthur. They were like first or second cousins, something like that. Scott's mom and Douglas MacArthur were cousins. Now, if your World War II history is a little rusty, uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur was basically a big deal in World War II. He was one of the most important American military leaders. He was the commander of all the allied forces in the Pacific theater. I'll spare you the history lesson. I'd love to talk for a couple of minutes about all the cool things MacArthur did. He was also a pretty flamboyant and sometimes even controversial figure. So he's one of those larger than life figures from, from uh, 20th century American history. And as some of you know, I'm, I was a history major in college. I've always loved history. And so when Scott just mentioned this in passing, I'm just like, what? Really? Wait a minute. What? Your mom, whom I met a couple months ago when she moved your stuff in with her, your dad, she's related to Douglas MacArthur. That's amazing to me. Uh, the funny thing, though, is that Scott really didn't seem to care at all. Uh, it, it, I mean, it wasn't like a bad thing. He didn't, you know, swear me to secrecy or anything. But, but he was not impressed the way I was. He just, he just kind of said it with a shrug, as I recall. Now, of course, part of that is just that it's his own story. When it's your own life, your own story, you know, you just kind of get used to stuff like that. But I, I was thinking about it, even just this week, looking at this passage. I think the, the real reason it didn't really matter to him or it didn't mean a lot to him, was that it didn't really affect his life. Uh, Scott, you know, my roommate there in the early 1990s, he, he wasn't a military guy. Uh, he was actually a chemistry major, kind of, you know, very cerebral that way. He ended up working for a pharmaceutical company for his whole career. I mean, he just, the fact that he was related to a famous general meant zero difference. It meant zero difference to his everyday life. And sometimes that's how it is. Sometimes it does not matter who we're related to, right? Sometimes it doesn't matter at all. But then sometimes, sometimes it does. Sometimes it matters a lot who we're related to. And that is why Luke dedicates most of today's passage to a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And again, thank you for, for reading that text this morning. I did give him the out, and he said, no, let's hear it. And, and John was absolutely right, because we need to hear those names. We need to hear that family tree of Jesus. Uh, the last uh, couple of passages we've looked at, If you're, we're studying through Luke, by the way, if you're visiting today. We're, uh, I didn't randomly pick this passage for this morning. Uh, we are studying through the Gospel of Luke. And for the last couple of times we've been in Luke, we've focused on John the Baptist, because that's what the text does. The text focuses mostly on John the Baptist. It's things we learn about Jesus from John. But, but most of chapter 3 to this point has been all about John the Baptist. Uh, now as we come to verse 21, Luke is going to move our attention more directly to Jesus, and that we're gonna, that's going to carry us for the rest of the book now. It kind of There's a shift to Jesus as, as we come to this point and the first thing john wants to excuse me luke wants to show us about jesus is that jesus was ready he was prepared for the work that god had called him to do he was prepared for this ministry uh, his actual ministry doesn't start till the middle of chapter 4 uh, it'll be verse 14 his actual formal ministry will begin but here in verse from from today's passage luke's going to tell us about the preparation That Jesus went through and there's actually three parts to it. So there's three parts to the preparation of Jesus We're going to cover two of them today and then we'll do the third one uh, Next week we'll get into the third part of his preparation for ministry next week But that's what's happening in this part of Luke Luke wants us the readers to know that Jesus was ready He was prepared for this So in today's passage, we'll look at the first two parts of of his preparation that Luke walks us through And there's really two things he shows us one is his baptism and then the other is this family tree, his, his genealogy. That's the purpose of the genealogy is to help you and me see how Jesus is prepared for what he's doing. And there's a lesson from these two. I want to put these two together today, as I say. And the lesson for us is that Jesus is qualified, well qualified. That's what Luke's point is theologically. He wants us to see that Jesus is well qualified to be our savior. He's well qualified to save us from our sins. So here's what I want to do with our time. Uh, I want to organize the, the sermon this morning around... It's actually a truth. I want to organize our sermon around an important theological truth that comes out from both of these, uh, these topics we're looking at this morning, the baptism and the genealogy. The baptism and the genealogy both emphasize the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So it's actually about the incarnation in that sense. The, the, the baptism and the genealogy, both underline this for us. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Not half God, half man. Uh, We usually talk about this at Christmas time. It's called the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus is is unique in the universe in that he has two natures, fully God, fully man. And that stands out in both of these these passages, this whole passage we're looking at this morning. And so what I want to do is I want to take us through four ways Jesus is qualified to save. All right, so he's come to be our Savior. Well, let's talk about why he's qualified to be our Savior. So we're going to look at four ways Jesus is qualified to save us. Two of them have to do with his humanity. It's the first two. And then the other two, two of them, have to do with his deity. So fully God, fully man. So we'll look at two, two ways Jesus is qualified to save us that have to do with his humanity. Two ways he's qualified to save us that have to do with his deity. So let's, let's get into this. Let's spend some time with this. All right, so number one, the, the first way that Jesus is qualified to be our Savior, is that he identifies with us. He identifies with us. Jesus uh, did not come to to planet Earth as some sort of a celestial tourist. Let's just go down and see what it's like down there. No, he came to Earth to become one of us and to identify fully with us. That's that's the fully, fully human part. So we see that, first of all, in his baptism. Let's look at that piece first. Uh, When Jesus chose to be baptized... He was choosing to identify with our need. That's why he's baptized, right? So verse 21. Now, uh, verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized. And, And some translations you might be looking at, like if you have an NIV this morning, it'll actually break this into its own sentence to emphasize this fact. Jesus was baptized, right? Jesus was baptized. So before we go any further, let's remind ourselves why people were being baptized. Right? Why were people being baptized by John? Well, they were being baptized, we saw earlier in the chapter, they were being baptized as a symbol of their repentance and a symbol of their forgiveness. So it was a symbol of their repentance and forgiveness from sin. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3, John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Which means... Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to get, stand in line and go under the water like everyone else was. Why? Because he didn't have any sin. Jesus didn't have any sin to turn away from. Therefore, Jesus didn't need to be forgiven. Therefore, Jesus, of all the people in that line in, uh, on the, in those many days, it wasn't just one day, of all the people who were baptized by John, Jesus uh, didn't need to be. That's why Matthew actually tells us that uh, at first John didn't want to do it. Luke's version is actually among the shortest. It is the shortest of the, of the, uh, the accounts of the baptism of Jesus. Matthew gives us more. Uh, Matthew 3, Matthew 3, verse 13. Uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to, to deter him. He tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Right, so Luke doesn't record that part, but, but Matthew does. J- John didn't even want to do it when Jesus showed up and said, baptize me. Why? Because John knew Jesus was greater. We talked about that a week or two ago. He knew uh, that Jesus didn't need to repent, and so he says, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Jesus insists that he does, and, and he goes ahead and does so, which for us stirs the question why. Why did Jesus do that? Why is Jesus baptized when he, of all people, didn't have any sin to turn from? And the answer is this first point. The answer is that he did it to identify with us. You see, sinners need to be baptized, and Jesus came to save sinners. Therefore, Jesus got in line with all the sinners, and he was baptized. He did it. Why was he baptized? He did it to be to identify with us. And so, in that sense, there's actually a line we can draw from something that happens here at the beginning of the gospel to something that happens all the way at the end of the gospel. Uh, In a sense, his baptism and his cross are the same. The baptism and the cross are the same in this sense. Jesus was baptized, he was baptized for our sins, and then later he died for our sins, he was crucified. For our sins. And so, in both cases, the, the start of his ministry and what ends up being the end of his ministry, he's doing it as an identification, not with anything that himself has need, but with our need. He's identifying with our need. That, that's what's going on there. You, so, so, you see his identification in, in his baptism. You, you see the same thing in the genealogy. We see the same thing with his, his human genealogy. That's the point of all those names. That's why it was so good for us to hear them all. Uh, th- you know, it's a long list. There's a lot of things we could say about this list. Now, some of you are terrified I'm going to preach through all those names. A couple of you are probably hoping I do preach through Let's, let's learn who all these people are. Uh, that would be a fascinating study, but we're not going to do it in a sermon. Uh, instead, I just want to kind of highlight some of the most important things from this gene- genealogy. And I think the the one of the two most important things from this genealogy is just the fact that it is, is his humanity that That's the point. He came to identify with the human race, just like each one of us, you know we could do the same thing with us. We, you know maybe with those DNA sites or something, you could trace it back that far. but uh, you, you, we, all of us have a, a a person that we're a son of or a daughter of that would go back. So does he. He identifies with us in, in that. and, and Luke theologically is going to emphasize this you see luke you'll notice luke traces all the way back to adam luke goes all the way back to adam of the four gospels only two of them give a genealogy so john and mark don't bother with the genealogy but matthew and luke do and so it's interesting to look at their two genealogies matthew's genealogy stops with abraham Matthew doesn't go back any further than Abraham. And actually, Matthew's is also reversed. It's an interesting thing to kind of lay the two next to each other and notice the things that are similar and the things that are different. Um, they seem to be tracing different lines. If you look at that and you start getting wondering why all the names aren't the same, he's, they're tracing two different lines for different reasons. But, but notably, Matthew stops with Abraham. He doesn't go any further back than Abraham. And the reason is that Matthew's goal is to emphasize the Jewishness of Jesus. One of Matthew's big goals in his gospel is to emphasize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah we've been waiting for all this time. So he stops with Abraham. He stops with the father of the Jews. But Luke, with a different agenda under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke takes it all the way back, all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the first man, all the way back to Adam. And so what's he doing? He's showing this Jesus goes all the way back. He's, he's fully human. He's, he's a son. He's not just a son of David or a son of Abraham, which is important, but he's a son of Adam. He's fully human. He's come to identify with us. Now, at this point, we say, well, okay, so what? <laughs> why, why, why does that matter? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus identifies with us? Well, a couple of things we can, we can talk about. For one thing, it matters because he can save us. I mean, I mean this, this goes to this idea of him being well qualified to be our savior. Uh, if he were not, if he did not identify with us in the fullness of our humanity, he would not be qualified to save us. And so this isn't kind of just a, a curious theological observation. This is the heart. This is at the heart of how we can be saved. He takes on the fullness of our humanity. He obeys fully where, where Adam and everyone since has failed. He steps up, he succeeds. He he obeys the the full commands of God, and then he steps in and he takes, having identified with us, he now takes our sin upon himself, right, which is prefigured in the baptism, uh, accomplished at the cross. He takes our sin upon himself. And so our salvation is effective. It works because he identifies with us in the fullness of our humanity. So that's one reason it matters. It matters because we can be saved. He's qualified to save us because of this. There's another reason it matters that we can talk about. We'll actually talk about it more next week, uh, but it goes to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, uh, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He identified with us in in entering into our humanity. He experienced it. Uh, The fullness of our humanity, everything except the sinfulness of it. And so he knows firsthand our God knows firsthand what it's like to be us. It's a very core part of uh, extension of the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, Jesus knows what it's like to feel hungry, to be thirsty, to feel pain. Uh, We'll see next week. He knows knows better than we do, I'll argue, what it feels like uh, to be tempted to the full. He knows what it is to feel scared, to feel sad, to feel disappointed, uh, to feel angry, to feel grief. All those things we experience, he, he knows. He knows. He experienced them too. And because he knows, he can help us. He can help us, uh, he can help us fully because he knows us fully. That's, that's a, one of the really important applications that comes out of this identification. So Jesus is qualified to save us. He's qualified because he identifies with us. Number two, the second way he's qualified to save uh, is that he set us an example. So this this comes out of it as well jesus came not only to die for us but he also came to show us how to live he came to set an example and we see this again from from the baptism uh, now luke's account i sort of mentioned this a minute ago um, luke's account of the baptism of jesus is the shortest of the three gospels that talk about it and uh, john john uh mentions the baptism of jesus but he doesn't tell us when it happened he just kind of refers to it backward almost like it already happened um but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us an account of the, of the, um, the baptism of Jesus. They all line up. There's no kind of uh, differences there of note. But Luke's is the shortest. Luke's is just a couple of verses long. So it's actually helpful to look at the other two. So I'll bring in some Matthew and some Mark here as, as we go along. Um, Matthew's is the longest version. His is the fullest. And I just read from it a minute ago, the part where John the Baptist at first didn't want to baptize Jesus. Listen to how Jesus answered John. So, this is, so Jesus tells John, well, you have to. It's, it's, it, this is the right thing to do. Listen to his explanation, Matthew 3, 15. <clears throat> but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So why does Jesus, John, John gives a reason, Jesus gives a reason to John for why john should baptize jesus it is fitting for us you and me john to fulfill all righteousness that's why you need to baptize me so basically what jesus tells john is that me being baptized jesus being baptized is the right thing to do not because he needed to do it right he didn't need it not because he needed to do it but because we need to do it that's that's the answer to that i know that verse is confusing sometimes to folks what do you mean it's fitting for all righteousness that It is right for you and me. We're supposed to do it. So he wants us to do it. He wants us to to experience and partake in this symbol of our repentance our confession and our repentance and our forgiveness. It's right for us to go through that. And so Jesus says, let me show you. Let me show you how it's done. Let me show you what I want you to do. And so he steps down into the water, identifies with us, and sets us an example. So we're we follow his example. We follow his, his well-qualified example of how God wants us to live. Uh, this applies to baptism, right? It, it, it's, it's kind of just hanging there. This applies to baptism directly. Uh, Jesus was baptized so that his followers would understand that we should be baptized. Baptized. Right when he gets to the end of Matthew, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when we get the Great Commission, he says, "Go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." There's no question, right? There's no kind of a, "Well, you didn't get baptized. Are you sure you want us to do it?" Yes, he did. He went first, and now we're supposed to do it as well. And so we're supposed to be baptized. Um, I haven't chosen a date yet. Uh, but I would like to do a baptism this spring. I'd like to do a, a baptism here at our church. I've, I'm kind of I want to see who's interested. I want to see who comes to me and says they would like to be baptized, and then we'll find a date that works for the people who are interested. Uh, sometime before Easter, actually, I would love to to set up the tank. Uh, for those of you who are newer to the church, um, you're like, "Where's the baptismal? Is it underneath where he's standing?" Uh, <laughs> we we don't have a baptismal. Um, what we have instead is a big uh, Cattle tank. Uh, it's a, this heavy-duty plastic thing. We store it off-site. It's kind of big. Uh, we bring it to the church. We roll it in. We set it up usually over here to my right, fill it with water. It takes a few days to get the water warm enough that you don't freeze. Uh, if we don't freeze, I'll get in there with you. Uh, and and so we, that's why it requires some preparation. We usually kind of have to announce that we want to do a baptism and then prepare for it. So, um, so the short, the, 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 long, the, the short version of the story is, if you would like to be baptized, please come talk to me. Because we are commanded to do it. We're commanded to do it. Not because it saves us. We don't teach that here, right? You, you do, we are not saved because we're baptized. We're baptized because we're saved, right? It's a symbol of the reality, the transformation that God has has done in us because we are already saved in Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him and so it's a symbol but it's an important symbol a symbol that we're, we're, we're commanded right we're commanded to be baptized how do I know we know because Jesus said it and we know because he did it we know from his example and so Jesus set an example for us and so if you've never been baptized come talk to me please I'd love to to help you obey the Lord that way So we have the specifics there, but then there's also the the general principle, right? Because baptism is a symbol, right? And so it's a symbol of what? It's a symbol of our obedience to the Lord in every part of our lives. And so when Jesus goes first and he gets baptized because he wants us to be baptized, so it is with with the rest of, so much of the rest of of his life. When we talk about the the perfect life of Jesus, it really does have two functions. The, The main function is to satisfy the righteousness of God. Right. And so he 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 succeeds where every human being all the way back to Adam and Eve failed, which is being able to live a perfect life. He succeeds there. But then he also he leaves us an example. Right. He'll say that, you know, when, the, when he washes the disciples feet, I left I'm leaving you an example. So so there's an example for us for, for us as we watch his life as we study through luke or read any of the gospels we're watching how jesus lived and we're saying okay i'm supposed to show compassion i'm supposed to do this i'm supposed to do that there's even one here in this text it's in verse 21 Uh, jesus had been baptized and was praying he was praying there's there's another example jesus uh, was a man of prayer you see him praying all the time In in the Gospels, especially Luke, Luke has a tendency to to emphasize his prayer life a lot. Uh, Jesus uh, was a man of prayer, and so what do we conclude from that? We should be men and women of prayer, and and there will be lots of other examples like this as we go along. You know, we are to follow his his example. Uh, There are things. There's some things he does that we're not called to do. I don't recommend you know walking on an ocean or trying to. You you sink pretty quick as we learned from Peter. But, uh, you know, but, the, so, but the, so don't be kind of uh, wooden literalists about it but the point is we look at how he lived his life and we follow his example so that's the second point so the first two humanity, humanity of Jesus he identifies with us, he sets an example for us he, and he's able to do that effectively he's well qualified to do it because he's fully human he, he, he set that example as a man himself he identifies with us as a human himself the other two connect with, as I said before, his deity. So let's turn to uh, to number three. The third way Jesus is qualified to save us is that he displays God's power to us. So I identify, he identifies with us. He says an example for us, and he shows us God's power. He displays God's power, and, and we see this. It, where in the text? Where do we see it? Well, we see it most immediately in his baptism. Here we go with the power of Jesus. In his baptism. So uh, again, verse 21. I'll read all of 21 and 22 now. Uh, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Three miracles happen. Three miracles happen when Jesus is baptized and taken together. These miracles showed his power. They—they were—it was a display. It's—it's he, he, it's the preparation. He hasn't even started the formal ministry yet, if you, in terms of doing miracles, doing teaching. But he starts with a bang. He starts with a display of power. Miracle number one is that the heavens were opened. I take that—I take that literally. I don't think it's a metaphor here. I think uh, there's a miracle. So Jesus comes up out of the water. He's praying. We're not told what he's praying. And the heavens were opened. Uh, Mark's version is, is the most vivid of the three. Mark 1.10 says uh, that Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. Being torn open. It's like God pulled back a giant curtain. It's kind of the picture you get there. As I say, some try to say, well, this is just kind of a vision or it's a, um, it's a, a figurative description of, of something that happened. I don't think that's right. Uh, if you do a little word study on the word opened here, that's you know, kind of a relatively common word. Um, in the New Testament, all the cases, there, I don't know, there might be one or two uh, uh, symbolic ones, but the vast majority of cases where this word is used, it's literal openings. Uh, somebody's mouth opens, a door opens, a box opens, um, gates open. Uh, it, it's, it, to open means to open. And, and so I think when we read that the heavens were opened, that's what we're supposed to understand happens here. Now, it's not entirely clear who saw it. It's, it's possible that many of the people's eyes were blinded, so they didn't. some couldn't see. Maybe it was just John and Jesus, for all we know, or maybe it was John Jesus and, and his disciples at that point. But whoever it was, uh, they saw a miracle. God opened the heavens, and, and uh, he opened the heavens. I mean, it's, that's how you have to picture this. That's miracle one. The second miracle is the Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form, as a dove and you know you watch different jesus movies and they're always kind of it's sort of artistic and a dove comes flying in and you know and and you almost take this one for granted but this is a miracle and actually it's it's such an important miracle we have a technical name for this kind of miracle it's called a theophany a theophany, an appearance of God, a theophany, uh, a, a, a theophany. It's, a, it's an appearance, that's a, that second part of the word, of God himself. And so it's a miracle, that Holy Spirit. Don't take that one for granted. Um, it's actually a temporary incarnation where the Holy Spirit of God, who is not embodied, right? He's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, manifests as, incarnates temporarily as a dove and alights on on jesus and so it's a miraculous thing and there's these different you actually see different versions that you know um the whirlwind that uh you see sometimes in, in the script, in the old testament or the pillar of fire i think you can even make a case the pillar of fire is is uh is a, is a theophany of the holy spirit or it's a theophany of god the father anyway uh, and so you have these different appearances here's another one god himself shows up so that's miraculous and then the third miracle is uh, actually involves the third person of the trinity involves the father and so this is actually a very Trinitarian passage. This is one of those texts we go to when we want to demonstrate the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? You have the Son being baptized, you have the Spirit coming down upon him, and then the Father himself speaks from heaven. You have all three operating in just these two verses. And uh, we'll look at what the Father says in a minute when we get to the fourth point, but I don't want to move too quickly past just the fact that the Father speaks. God speaks audibly from heaven that's what happens there in verse 22 and again uh, we can't we're not sure who could hear the voice or who could interpret the words Um, there's actually something very similar in john john chapter 12 you've got a different time when the father speaks to jesus from heaven and we're told in john 12 that jesus heard and knew exactly what the father said but that some of the people in the crowd couldn't understand it. So John 12:29. If you want a picture of what might have happened here, you could look at John 12:29. The crowd said it had thundered, while others said that an angel had spoken to them. So some people misinterpreted it. They didn't have ears to hear. But none of that changes the fact that these things are miracles. The one in John, as well as the one we're looking at today. God speaks. God speaks from the open door of heaven to Jesus. And so you have these three miracles. Right? You have the heavens opened, the Father speaking, the Spirit alighting. Uh, it's a miraculous display. And from that point on, Jesus is going to display God's power again and again and again and again. We're going to keep getting it as we go along in this gospel. Uh, and, and I don't mean to suggest that Jesus did not have God's power before this point. He was God, I believe he did. But what you have here is the, it, we're, we're being shown the preparation of his ministry. Why is he well qualified to save us? Well, he's well qualified to save us because he's operating in the very power of God. He shows us God's power. And so there's going to be all these other miracles we'll see. The calming of the storm and the feeding of the 5,000 and raising Lazarus. All these other different ones you see. Lazarus isn't in, in, in uh, Luke, but, but you see all these different miracles that he does. And they all culminate, all of these displays of God's power, where are they going to culminate? The biggest display of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, and so he is well qualified to save us because he displays the very power of God. Well, finally, the, the uh, fourth way, let's look at number four here, the fourth way that he's qualified is that he exercises God's authority. So this is number, number four. Not only did Jesus come with God's power, fully God, he also came with God's authority, fully God. We see this in what the Father said. We see it in the words of the Father from heaven. Uh, middle of verse 22, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we've already been told in Luke's gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. We've actually been told twice. Uh, the first time was from an angel. Gabriel said it back in chapter 1. Gabriel told Mary, uh, your baby will be called to the Son of the Most High, verse 32, and the Son of God, verse 35. Uh, the second time came from Jesus. Jesus himself has claimed to be the Son of God. Already. It was subtle, but he's already claimed it. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Uh, Jesus, why did you hang out at the temple? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house right so here there's jesus the temple is my is is my father's house it's god's house it's my father's house jesus says so so we've already been told luke's been working us up uh, to this point so far now the father says it we've had an angel say it we've had jesus hint at it now the father says it himself you are my son whom i love with you i'm well pleased that's quite the reference. Right, talk about being prepared. He hasn't preached a sermon yet, not formally. And there he is. What what a reference. The Father himself vouches for Jesus. And as he does, he actually quotes himself. So you, you, you see his words there. The Father is actually quoting himself, he's quoting the Old Testament from two different places. And both of them, they're significant, this, this thing that God says to, to Jesus, they're both significant because they both point to his authority. They both have to do with the authority, uh, the messianic authority, the divine authority that Jesus is wielding. Uh, the first quote comes from Psalm 2. So it's Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, and in that psalm, if you were here last year, we looked at that at some point as we went through Hebrews because it's quoted in Hebrews. But in Psalm 2... Uh, It was a psalm used for the coronation of the the Jewish king, but it was understood to be messianic. And so the voice of the Messiah, the Messiah is speaking kind of from the future, as it were, in Psalm 2. And in verse uh, 7, the Messiah says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He, God, said to me, the Messiah, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Well, here it is. Here's the fulfillment. That's what God is saying from heaven. And so he quotes this, this passage that all the Jewish people there would have been familiar with. It's the second Psalm. Uh, he quotes it and he says, here he is. Here's the one I said I was going to send. Psalm two uh, is about the divine authority of the, of, the Israel, of the Israelite king fulfilled ultimately in the Messiah. And so here he is. This is my son whom I love. The second part of the quote uh, comes from Isaiah, it's Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 42 is uh, the first of what we call the servant songs, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and those are also Messianic passages. So it's another Messianic prophecy coming at it from a different angle, not his kingship like the Psalm does, but rather from his his mission to suffer uh, on, on our behalf. And that's the other, the other piece of this quote comes from uh, Isaiah 42.1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. That's the, it, it's not exactly carry through in English, but with you I'm well pleased. My chosen one in whom I delight. That's what, what he's, he's quoting there. And I'll put my spirit on him. Here he is. The Holy Spirit descends and he will bring justice to the nations. And so it's the same claim. It's, it's coming from another angle, but it's the same claim as Psalm as Psalm two. Here's here he is. Here's the promised Messiah. Here's the one I said I'd send. Here's the one who I have sent to bring salvation and justice to the nations. That's what he's going to do. And it implied in all of that that the, the reference to the king as well as the suffering servant, he comes with God's own authority, and so he comes with God's. He comes to exercise God's authority over us as God's son. You actually get this from the genealogy, too, to come back to that. Uh, I said there were kind of two major themes from that uh, genealogy with all those names. Uh, The first one was his humanity to connect back to to, to Adam, but the other one was to connect to his divine authority. Because Luke, I said he goes all the way back to Adam, but he actually goes back one more step, doesn't he? And you don't find any other genealogies. There's no other biblical genealogies that do what Luke's going to do here in that last verse of verse 3. That last verse of of chapter 3. Luke doesn't just stop with Adam, which is where all the other genealogies stop. He goes back one more step and he says, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God. Much later in Luke, much later when we get to chapter 20, uh, some religious leaders are going to come to Jesus and they're going to question him, kind of obnoxiously, uh, about his authority. So Luke 20, verse 2. By what authority do you do these things? And if you remember the passage, Jesus won't answer them. Uh, He knows what they're up to, so he uses wisdom and he he deflects uh, answering them. But we know the answer. We've known the answer since chapter 3. We've known the answer since today's passage. We know where his authority comes from. It comes from the Father. That's where his authority comes from. And, and you, you see it here in this passage. Uh, Jesus will say something along these lines in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, verse 49. I, do not, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus knew exactly where his authority came from it came from the fact that he was and is God himself, he was and is the Son of God. And we know it too. Right? that's why Luke Luke is he's Luke doesn't really hold back a lot. He wants us to see what he's doing, uh, he, what what God is doing here in Jesus, and so he's telling us a lot of these things we need to know to interpret this book right up front. Jesus has all the power and all the authority he needs to save us from our sin, and and he he it means he can. It's why we pray. Like I mentioned a minute ago, that prayer is one of the big themes in Luke's gospel, and it is. We pray because Jesus has the authority to answer our prayers. Uh, he has the authority to help us when we're being treated unfairly. You know, you take that, that idea of justice that carries over from that servant song in Isaiah 42. Uh, I bet you every person in the room can think of an instance or many, maybe uh, many instances where you uh, have been treated unfairly, maybe even are enduring on some kind of unjust treatment even now. He can help us with that. He has the authority to do so. He has the authority to provide for our needs in ways we cannot provide for ourselves. And best of all, to come back to this idea of being qualified to save us, which I think is the main emphasis, best of all, he has the authority to forgive our sins. We'll see that in one of his early miracles, when he, there's a man who needs healing, and, well, before I heal you, I'm going to forgive your sins, right? We'll look at that one in a little while. Uh, he has the authority to forgive our sins. And so when we pray and ask God to forgive us, we don't just cross our fingers and hope that it works. We know that it works. We know because we know he has the authority to forgive us. As a a pastor named Steve Brown once said, if I tell you you're forgiven, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. But if Jesus tells you you're forgiven, you're forgiven. He has the authority. He has the authority to forgive. He has the authority. He is well qualified to save us.